Here at Lorehaven, we explore a lot of Christian-made fantastical books. But what about video game stories? What about Christians who are making different kinds of playable adventures set in worlds like the Wingfeather Saga and the Redwall series? Chris Skaggs enters the family room and takes us behind the controllers of Soma Games to help us play games for God's glory. Welcome back to Fantastical Truth, the recreation podcast from lorehaven.com in which we explore fantastical stories, including games sometimes, for God's glory. I'm E. Stephen Burnett, the publisher of Lorehaven and co-author of The Pop Culture Parent. That's what it was. This is episode 197, How Do Christian Creators Make Video Adventures? Shortly, we shall be joined by Chris Skaggs with Soma Games. Zach, by the way, is on an away mission. Uh, Thomas Umstad, our previous guest, brought the Novel Marketing Conference to town. So for any of you all who are interested in marketing novels, that's a thing that happened and we hope it'll happen again. But Zach's off filming the thing and uh, helping make sure that it gets covered well. Uh, He should be back in the studio next week. We were going to talk about video games, though, Zach and I, because Zach's the cool guy. He's played all the games, uh, unlike me, the homeschool guy who didn't play as many games. uh, But I did play some educational games. The first games that I remember uh, even in my dad's old uh, Apple green on black uh, computer were the Carmen San Diego educational games uh, that blew my mind that you could just go on this, uh, well, interactive adventure and learn a little something about geography. That's back when they used to put them in a box and you had to get like Fodor's Guide to the USA or the World Almanac or some kind of American history textbook. And you had to look up all of the answers in a book. So books and games often go together. That's what I was trained to think anyway, uh, since I was a kid. But then after that, I I even I did play some worldly non-educational video games like Duke Nukem, the original, not the bloody first person shooter one. It was a DOS based side scroller. Duke Nukem was pink and he had blonde hair and a big gun and he ran around shooting at monsters in the then distant year of 1997 when the forces of Dr. Proton had taken over the world. So glad we all survived that particular carnage and uh, now we can enjoy stories like this one. Those are just video games and just video games, of course, could be something ungodly or maybe something a little suspicious like Maybe they're not sinful, but they are kind of stupid, aren't they? You've probably heard that. We'll talk about that coming up as soon as uh, Chris arrives. First of all, a mission update at Lorehaven. The big theme this year is Heartless, uh, the new book quest for an older book, actually published in 2010, a fairy tale by Anne Elizabeth Stingle. The book quest is being led by Elijah David. And if you're listening to this episode on release day, it starts on Thursday, February the 1st. Be careful what you give your heart to. Fairies and romance abound this February as we explore the world of Goldstone Wood in Anne Elizabeth Stingle's Heartless. It's not just a princess who's uh, looking for a prince. There's also a dragon involved and evil and lots of fiery blasts. Uh, I read this book once a long time ago. I may rejoin that book quest myself. Elijah David's leading that. You can get more information in our show notes. We also have a review of Heartless fantastic title i think you are sure to enjoy that to get in the lorehaven guild our castle in the cloud where we do book quests and discussion about uh, christian reading just subscribe free at lorehaven lorehaven.com it's free to subscribe and then we will send you the secret portal key to leap into the guild our uh, discord server and join our growing community of heroes there 
Meanwhile, our top sponsor of this episode is Enclave Publishing, a returning champion as well. They have a new book coming out later this month called Mortal Queens. That book is releasing on February the 6th, wherever books are sold. They vanish without a trace, disappear into the night. Each year on the center island, one girl is chosen to be the next mortal queen of the idolized Fae. The mortals praise these lucky girls, but their daughters are never seen again. The Fae realm is eternal night, where disputes are settled by chess matches, power is acquired through the most devious kinds of trickery, and seven elusive kings roam. The Fae hide their faces behind masks and guard their glass hearts to keep them from shattering. But beyond the veil of this luxurious paradise, a dark secret simmers, for their queens have disappeared. When aspiring artist Althea is selected, she is desperate to avoid the same mysterious fate. With no one to trust, she conceals messages in paintings and receives anonymous replies from a stranger who slowly reveals the tale of a girl who outwitted the Fae. Only if she is clever enough will Althea survive the fate of the mortal queens, as long as the king who cannot love does not claim her first. Mortal Queens is book one of the Fae Dynasty series by Victoria McCombs. It arrives February 6th, just next week, wherever books are sold. You can see that amazing cover in our show notes for episode 197 or look for the box atop lorehaven.com slash podcast. All right, I hear a strange scraping sound that can only mean the arrival of a certain time travel device. Uh, it's materializing in the studio. Chris Skaggs just vorp, vorped into here with the TARDIS that he's borrowed from a certain Time Lord. Uh, he is the founder and chief operations officer, Chris, that is, uh, not the doctor, of Soma Games and Soma Soulworks. Created in 2005, Soma Games fancies itself the C.S. Lewis of video games. Now, there's an interesting picture that just popped into my imagination and strives to do the epithet honor by making artistically excellent games for people who may never go to church but do find themselves having fun while pondering eternal things. Soma Soulworks is the ministry side of Soma's coin, producing teaching and podcasts that seek to reach young adult creatives, especially those working in arts and entertainment. Chris is an Intel Black Belt recipient and frequent speaker at mobile and game developer conferences, including GDC, the Game Developer Conference, the Christian Game Developers Conference, Casual Connect, Serious Play, and Intel Innovators Forum. Chris, welcome to the Lorehaven Studios. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I also learned uh, right after we've scheduled your interview, actually, uh, that you are one of the three keynote speakers scheduled uh, for this summer's uh, Realm Makers Conference uh, 2024 in St. Louis. Yeah, that's exciting. So uh, I ran into Scott, actually, I think he came to one of our conferences and introduced himself, and we've become fast friends ever since. So I'm glad to be there. Well, there's an overlapping mission between what Realm Makers does, which is to equip uh, Christian creatives in like more of the book and publishing space, and what Soma Games does uh, and with the Soma Soulworks uh, that seeks to reach young adult creatives. I'm curious about you moving into chapter one here. Uh, when did you discover, not necessarily in this order, Jesus Christ and video games? Yeah, so the order of that was I definitely discovered games first. So <laughs> I grew up in a family where both my folks were sort of post-Christians, like they, they had grown up in a faith. Um, one was Catholic, one was Episcopalian. By the time they were adults, they'd kind of faded away from that. And so in my life, faith was the thing that you did on Easter and Christmas. And so we'd visit grandma and they would always sort of threaten us with going to midnight mass. We never did. Um, so I have these words and thoughts in the back of my mind. So none of them was hostile or anything like that, but it just wasn't part of it. 
So for me though, but games were a huge part of my childhood. So probably the, my my buddy Jim got the Atari twenty six hundred when we were in middle school or something. I'm guessing. And I just remember sitting on our tummies in front of his you know big old enormous cathode ray TV and playing that thing every single day. Right? It was it was the very beginnings of Activision when they had like Stampede and uh, Track and Field. And uh, 2600 kind of grew through several iterations, right? So back then, every couple of years, well, that's the same thing now, right? So it's Atari had the lead, and then Nintendo got involved. There was ColecoVision. There were all these different consoles, and different kids would beg their parents for for a, a game console. And as that was going along, we were playing those games. Also, personal computers started to be new. So another buddy of mine wound up with this Texas Instruments TI-99, and we learned how to program in BASIC. And of course, the first thing you learn is a game. And, uh, and so I, in my first list of like, like, what were the games that really influenced me was Scott Adams used to make, he was like one of the founders of the text adventure game genre. So uh, not Dilbert Scott Adams, um, other Scott Adams. And we, we found those so fascinating, but also we could kind of make one ourselves. So kind of, right? So certainly very beginners. But me and a couple of friends would collaborate on this thing we called Boot Hill. And it was just this giant chain of if-then statements. You know, if you go left, you, you see this. If you go right, you see this. But we had so much fun. And, uh, and also back in the day, you had to type everything by hand. There were no discs. There was no saving anything. So we would print our program out and trade it around. You'd have to put it in and type it in. And that was a huge thing. So we were learning how to make games. So over the years, we're learning more and more programming. I'm learning how to do just a little bit of graphics. And then, you know, games continue to evolve. Shortly thereafter, I got a Commodore 64. And uh, one of the first games from Electronic Arts was the uh, Adventure Construction Kit, which totally blew my mind. I loved that game. And again, it was like very simple graphics, sprites, um, but it was mostly storytelling, right? So you, you'd lay out different fantasy, sci-fi, whatever you want to do. So writing was a key piece of that and a little bit of code. That thing blew my mind because now it was very deliberately. I could like up my ability to create something very formative. And then somewhere near, not technically a game, I very clearly remember the day when there was a commercial on TV and it had one of those flying, spinning 3D logos, right? It was like like early computer graphics. And I just thought, that's magic, man. That is so cool. And I decided I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be in computer graphics. That's going to be my career. And, uh, and my folks are like, you're 12. You don't know what you're talking about. But I stuck with it. Man. Like I knew what I, this is what I wanted to do. And that stuck with me for years and years. Somewhere in there, Mist came out, which of course was a whole nother level of graphics and storytelling. Absolutely blew my mind. Um, so those are the three games I think of as very formative in my story. At some point then, I graduate from high school and I go to junior high. And remember, I'm going to be a computer animator, computer graphic. That's my career. And I sit down on my very first day at, at college and I'm just chatting with some random dude. And hey, what are you doing? What's your name? That kind of stuff. And I tell him, I'm going to be a computer animator. And without blinking, he just looks at me and says, that's probably the most boring, tedious job I can even manage. Anyways, I got to get out of here. So he leaves and I suddenly realize I have no idea what I'm, what I'm talking about. I've done no research. I don't know what goes into this job. I, maybe he's right. And I just, it shut down my dream instantly. And I found myself like utterly wandering. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And, and so for, for the next couple of years, I'm like, dang, I, I I don't know what I'm going to do with my life, right? I have no joy. And, uh, and I really, I really had a hard time right at that season. I wound up joining the Navy for lack of a better word. 
and I just didn't know what I wanted to do. I probably knew I still wanted to go to college, but didn't know how. They give you money for school. So if you take certain jobs, you get like the funds for college. And it was while I was in the Navy, so this is now I'm whatever it is, 22, 23 years old, when I discovered Christ. And so it was there, and you know, when I'm out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean in the, in the dark, you know, basically you start talking to God because you're reading all the C.S. Lewis books, and you start talking to God, and then he talks back. And sure enough, that's, that's kind of how I got there. <laughs> There's C.S. Lewis. Uh, we joke, Zach and I, when we ask people about their, uh, their backstories, or as Christianese would say, that the testimony that it's got to be C.S. Lewis in there somewhere, if you're going to be on this podcast, it is a rule. Uh, when did you accept Ashlyn as your personal lion and savior? <laughs> so which Lewis books were these, the nonfiction, the fiction, or a little bit of both? Yeah, so when I was on the ship, they actually have a pretty extensive library on the ship, and I read all of it. And so at the same time I'm reading Narnia, I'm reading a great divorce. I'm reading mere Christianity. And ultimately though, I would say it was mere Christianity that did it the most because the thing in my mind that was the hardest was I could not abide the idea that I would be a fool. And so it somewhere in there was that, that pitch that so many kids get is Christianity is for idiots. It's just a myth. You know, a bunch of old white dead men wrote this book. Like you, you get this fear that you're just being stupid. And certainly as a, as a, you know, testosterone-filled young man, that's unacceptable. But Lewis proved you can be smart and faithful, um, including the fact of his own conversion, like like this idea, like he came to the faith as an adult and through intellect. It gave me permission. And, uh, and I really cared about the fact that you had to be thoughtful and intelligent about it. So I would say it was that book more than anything else. So I doubt this is true for our audience at Lorehaven, but there does persist in the Christian community a continual myth that you cannot have both Babylon of games uh, and uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, that one of uh, the games that is are going to make you uh, a mature, uh, in, immature young man uh, sitting around uh, in his basement, failing to make a name for himself. And then even now you will see a few possibly well-meaning, you know, pastors, uh, leaders of some kind, you know, usually they're kind of the gung-ho, you know, Jim bro sports ball types of fellas who are going out there lambasting video games as the hallmark of immaturity in people, especially young men, you very clearly do not feel this way. And not just because it's your job, uh, but because uh, it seems that God had used uh, games and the joy uh, that they brought yes. and the community that they brought to tell you about virtue, to communicate something to you about uh, human flourishing. But that's how I would put it. But how would you uh, respond to just some of the mythology that video games are inherently immature that make you into a basement dweller. Yeah. So you think about like Mark Driscoll is famous for saying this, like huge, huge influential pastor back in the day and him saying like video games aren't a sin. They're just stupid. He's been playing the wrong sorts of games. Well, exactly. I, I think that this is probably the biggest challenge is like folks who really don't know gaming at all. And it, it's similar. I think that a lot of times when people have no, have never have read literature, they've only read sort of like children's books in the doctor's office. They, they mistake in, they mistake a format for the the whole breadth of what's going on. I think one of the easiest ways to to, to see is like when when folks' only emotional experience with games is telling their kids to stop. Right, we're just trying to manage screen time. They perceive the whole thing as a point of conflict. There's an article I wrote a couple, I mean, maybe a year or two ago, where I started uh, speaking to this question in uh, a thing called AI and Faith. It's an online newsletter. And I said, let's talk about games as a controlled substance. Mm -hmm. If your five-year-old is mouthing off in the backseat and you hand her a beer, you're just a bad parent. 
Like you're just doing this wrong. And there's a thousand reasons why we know that that is wrong. Her young neurophysiology cannot handle that kind of stimulation. And so you're doing, you're doing damage. Also, we all understand that alcohol is, is something that we have to be cautious about and, and because there's good and the bad and the ugly, but there is the good, right? And so, and so then when that, when that kid is 16 and is hooked on tequila, like you don't blame tequila, you blame the mom. But we find ourselves with games where so many parents feel like they have no choice in the matter and they just have to give their kid the hit because all their friends are doing it. And what am I going to do? Am I going to say no? It's like, yes, say no and understand the neurophysiology of your kid. But also as an adult, like the, you think about the maturity that goes into a game like Detroit Too Human, that the intelligence that it takes to play some of these stories, sometimes just from a skill perspective, but often the stories now are so dense and profound and they everything when you consider games as a form of art and not just a distraction then a whole range of things becomes possible that you hadn't thought of before the idea that comedy satire drama romance all those things are completely possible this is just a format then i want to punch mark driscoll in the face because he has no idea what he's talking about and what he's wound up doing either deliberately or accidentally is he's taken a whole bunch of people who this is a source of joy for them and he's just made them feel like crap about something that actually brings them life that i think is the hallmark of christ is life and so yeah they just don't know what they're talking about well driscoll has some other issues as well that we needn't get into but uh, any listeners out there who are thinking yeah what what, what driscoll he, he doesn't have room to talk like yes yes we know but we're here to talk about <laughs> video games i almost wish chris that we had a different name instead of video games because uh, the term arose i guess in the early days of the games like even going back to pong and i guess it was yeah. the 70s before my time and all of this Video games does connote like some sort of, you know, mindless experience. Uh, but even uh, recently, there was a kid who went viral on YouTube because he purportedly beat Tetris. Right. Like, he played Tetris right. so long and so rapidly and so skillfully at the age of 13 that he beat it. So even with a more traditional video game that has no storyline, no character interactions, no humans at all, there is an art form to that. But now we've got what are basically interactive serialized dramas that depending on how intense a gamer you are can take weeks to play through uh there's a central storyline with these you know triple a uh game titles that takes weeks to play through and then there's also these many subplots and these these different uh, materials you have to collect if it's an rpg and you know these skill trees that you unlock and all these talents that you um acquire materials you know all the battles, all of these things, uh, at least those are the games that I enjoy. And so these right. are more effectively, I mean, interactive, not even interactive movies, because most movies don't go over, you know, three hours, four at, at the most. Uh, these are interactive, serialized dramas. Uh, the games that I enjoy, like literally this morning, it's Saturday morning as we record. So right after breakfast, I was uh, getting in some time at, uh, at Hogwarts Legacy. The game has some issues, but it is absolutely marvelous, an absolutely spectacular game with so many different disciplines that go into making this game uh the magic system and literally a magic system because this is a, is this is the wizarding world the music the fact that you have all of these options for character creation it's extraordinary and then other games like they give you a main character you know with her own uh, story or his own story and that's who you're stuck with and one of my favorite games is um the horizon series uh zero dawn right. uh and forbidden west and there'll be at least uh, one more those are extraordinary. There's, you know, superhero games, Batman, Spider-Man, Avengers, some of those like 
I enjoy playing those. Uh, and yet it's not, I think, a waste of time because there is indeed an art to it. Like I noticed when I was playing the Hogwarts game, like just some moments of something approaching beauty where, yes. you know, you're learning uh, to practice astronomy um, or some sort of magical, whimsical thing just happens out of nowhere and it surprises you. And to me, that's not driving me down into the basement to sit in darkness. Usually I'm sitting there, you know, with my wife beside me watching or, or doing something. It creates or helps to create community instead. It's drawing me out of myself and more toward the higher things. Man, I couldn't agree with you more. One, the language, the language is going to be something I think about more and more these days. And so instead of saying video game more and more, I try to say interactive entertainment or like you said, interactive novel or something like that. Because I do think that connotation, it doesn't do anybody any good. And I wound up having the conversation you just tapped on with, uh, especially around Christians who are investors of some kind or another, who are really trying to get their head around this idea, is you have to get out of your head the notion that these are single player in the basement experiences. I mean, that still happens, don't get me wrong, but so much of gaming now is about community. And the fact that you have, I mean, Twitch has to prove a point to you that people are watching other people play games. People are watching other people make games. There's this chat, there's this, there's a shared love. And if you understand that, then something really profound happens around what is the purpose in God's kingdom of art and of beauty and collecting people around beauty just because it, I think it's in our souls to be drawn towards it. Then and sort of by definition, every time there's a light in the dark, like people are going to be drawn to it and then they're going to find each other. They're going to find something that they share, something that they can talk about. And now you've got a ways for two eternal things, for that matter, a hundred thousand eternal things to be sharing in a moment of like transcendent beauty. Like that is a remarkable moment. Interactive is a thing now where from a cultural standpoint, all of the other arts are starting to draw into games as a crossroads right so the, the the creation of a game these days takes illustrators voice actors writers musicians like every art you can imagine goes into the construction it's like building a cathedral and so an interesting aspect is in in writing uh, in music there's there's celebrities right there's like this person wrote that book this band wrote that song that's really, really, really rare in gaming. There's a very short handful of people, like Miyazaki, for example, that, that, in, that gamers know by name. But otherwise, no one thinks that way because games have hundreds, if not dozens, of participants. And, and you have to be super, like, you're, you're, you're pretty much an otaku if you're like, oh, I know that particular soundtrack designer. Like, that's one thing, but that's really rare. So games become like the crossroads of all the arts, which I think is actually a really good thing because I think another magic power, especially of mobile, is the distribution. So anybody who's a writer, who's a musician, who's an actress, the idea that your work can go in front of literally half of the world and with a click of a button, that's remarkable. It's amazing. And the technology, you know, Wi-Fi and all that has only unlocked more wider distribution for games because now you don't have to go to the game store, which is kind of an infamous development. I saw recently that I think it was Xbox. It was getting out of the... Uh, hard copies of games business or maybe trying to yeah, yeah I, I think there's going to be some some backlash there because folks like to own their games and yet they also like to join that community there's something to be said about going out to a special place to get the game 
And that's something that I enjoyed doing when the Spider-Man 2 game came out. Uh, I went to Best Buy. I'm not sure why, because they were completely sold out and they don't want to do physical media anymore anyway. So then, yeah, I went to GameStop and I found my copy and had a, had a little interaction with the NPC. Well, she is her own playable character at, at the GameStop. <laughs> you know, it felt like a side quest, you know, to to pick up the game itself. Then I realized, oh, great, you know, real life is being uh, gamified. And don't misunderstand, like I'm not even like a really hardcore gamer. I will maybe play a few hours every week uh, just because of the nature of my work and the fact that I also try to read a lot of books. But I probably game a lot more than I realize, uh, come to think of it, if I'm starting to think about real life in terms of NPC interactions. Uh, maybe uh, that's a sort of a viewpoint that we need to cull, uh, just like the notion that video games are inherently stupid uh, or maybe even sinful. And so speaking of culling, that brings me to our second sponsor, returning champion Anthony DeGroot with his novel, The Culling Begins, starting off the next Christian series that you could get into. The series starts with The Culling Begins, a fictional story about 12 spirit oaks who guard Eden from the Great Deceiver. After standing for as long as anyone can remember, the spirit oaks begin to vanish from the world and two opposing forces begin to clash. The Spirit Oak Chronicles will take you on a journey of faith, courage, and horror, all to save Eden. This is The Culling Begins by Anthony DeGroot. This first installment of the Spirit Oak Chronicles is available in paperback and ebook wherever books are sold. Uh, links in the show notes for this episode 197 or go to lorehaven.com slash podcast. All the sponsors are at the top of that page. So chapter two, Chris, uh, this is a question I think that you and I will both have some opinions on, and yet I think it's a shared opinion. How can Christians game for God's glory? But before we continue in that, I'm curious just what connotations uh, that you have when you first hear that phrase, God's glory, uh, and maybe some of the things that you've run into, not just as a gamer, but also a game designer and uh, due to the work that you do with Soma Games. I think when we started talking about email, you showed me this question ahead of time. And my, my response was that that question sometimes hurts my heart because often, and I realize this isn't, this isn't where you were coming from, but often I hear that question with a connotation, which is to say, it doesn't like we like games do not provide to God's glory, and so as a result, we it's sort of like in the last section, like like there's gaming at its core is negative, is a waste of time, and is possibly from the devil. So 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 often I hear that that frankly it triggers me in some cases. I'm like, oh. well, you usually like someone maybe raise their eyebrows and like, does that really glorify God? I mean, it can be asked very passive aggressively rather exactly. than with a posture of openness. Like, how does this glorify God? Like, notice the question I phrased it like didn't say, do Christians can we even game for God's glory? You know, with this defensive posture, but how can this happen? Which yeah. presumes that it is possible, and I believe it absolutely is, just like with any other uh, human expression of creativity. Yeah, so so with games, I think you you have uh, a couple other people, uh, not people. You have a couple other places and, and efforts that have often tried to sort of like subvert gaming to their other purposes, which is to say, you see educational games, which almost always suck, right? And and so the reason that edutainment sucks is that there's a fundamental mismatch of core goals. If I'm trying to teach you something, that's a that's a good goal, and that's that's appropriate. If I'm trying to have fun, that's also a good goal. But when either of those becomes sort of like subjected to the other one, then you then one of them suffers and they're off target. When I'm trying, like one of the natures of play is this notion that the goal is fun, right? The goal is, and, and that's not to say that that's not to say that that's not a an appropriate or a meaningful goal. It is the goal, which is different than to listen to uh, a gospel track, which is different than to teach me about math, 
and you'll see the same kind of things where the government has, a, has occasionally tried to use games as a kind of propaganda, right? And the difference between propaganda and, and uh, I guess, sort of like more meaningful discussion is that it is a subjective purpose. Like, so my, my good storytelling, my excellent novel is no longer about expose or, or deep thinking. It's now about pitching a message, right? A, a political message. And, and so when, when we talk about God's glory, I think that the Reformation has hurt us, which is to say the focus on sort of like sola scriptura and in that in the church setting has meant that if you're not learning about Christ, if you're not quoting the Bible, then it's probably not good, which is which leads also to you shouldn't have any fun in your work. So anyways, I think I think that the, the sola scriptura thing has been a function and totally unintentional. I'm not saying that sola scriptura is bad. I think when it applies here, it becomes a tricky Dorothy Sayers has this line where she says, the church has never made up its mind about art in general. Now, she means the Protestant church, where beauty, we talk about, you know, truth, the good, the beautiful, and the true. We're all really happy with the truth. We're really comfortable with that. I think everyone agrees that the good, even if we fail to define it, is, is awesome. But beauty gets kicked off the back of the bus because we don't know what to do with it. We don't know what it means. And the truth is it gets underneath the other two. Like, as, as Simone Weil used to say, like beauty is one of the two things that, that pierces the soul. It gets underneath all of our expectations. It gets underneath all of our presuppositions. And I would argue that it's, it's why parables work. Here, here's one of the, the, the hot takes I love when people start to confuse art and, and, and Bible. I'm like, did you recognize that Jesus told parables in order to be misunderstood? He says, like, that's a feature, not a bug. Right, the idea, like I tell you, so that you guys won't get this. He said, "He and who we, has ears to hear, let him hear." He was encouraging yeah. someone to lean forward and ask the questions, to think about the symbols and the meanings of what he was saying. Yeah, and that is a that is a bizarre thought that that, and, and when people start to realize this, like, oh, parables do that on purpose, and and when we see that, then this whole concept of like, why do we tell meaningful stories? Why is there metaphor? Why is there beauty? Um, frankly, because sometimes. In the, most of us in the West have had some conversation that says, uh, at some point, my faith moved from my head to my heart. Like We've heard that idea that, that so often. And I've always said, that's because we did it backwards in the first time, in the first place. We appeal so often to people's heads and ignore their hearts when really it should be the other way around. I would rather have someone's heart captured to Christ, and then they can work out the details, right? Like they can work out the details. But you can't think yourself into passion. You can't think yourself into love. And you can't think yourself into relationship. Or at least it's much, much harder. I shouldn't say you can't, uh, but it's so harder. So, okay. So it goes back to your question, God's glory. St. Irenaeus had this quote, it is the glory of God for man to be fully alive. The whole notion of life is this fullness of joy and fun and laughter and, and games, games when they're done well, which is true of all art. They bring us into the, that emotional fullness, that full range of emotional thing that is absolutely a gift of God. It is absolutely a reflection of being fully alive. We see in Jesus the whole range of human emotion from anger and sadness, from frustration and irritation. Some of the things that, that mess with us the most is when we read that Jesus is clearly irritated with someone. It's like, how long do I have to live with you people? Right? And you're like, ooh, that doesn't feel good. But if we contextualize this like yeah but he's clearly doing this range of human emotions sinlessly he's doing it well that means that i can too um that is a that is a reality instead of being kind of the frozen chosen and uh and, and neglecting fun neglecting laughter and for that matter neglecting crying you know when when the best stories roger ebert said a game can't be art until it makes me cry 
they do that all the time now. Oh yeah, right? I have. Uh, I've been stunned when a game, like even a subplot, uh, Spider-Man goes to help a guy in the park who's, who's who's lost, and his granddaughter's looking for him, and Spider-Man finds him. It's a side quest. It's not even part of the main plot. This then uh, Spider-Man Two just released uh, last fall. Uh, and then uh, the man just says, hey, Spidey, come sit with me a moment. And uh, I forget whether you have the option to just run away, but I'm pretty sure if you start the side quest, like you can't skip this dialogue. You you need to sit there. You need to understand you know, the type of person that you've helped to save. And this man is suddenly talking to you about his wife who's now gone and how you know decades ago, this is how they fell in love. And they used to come to the park all the time. And here's how she behaved when he finally got the nerve to propose and you know, and this figures into Peter Parker's story in the game as well, because as usual, Peter Parker's trying to balance his real life and his spider life. And it's just suddenly I'm sitting there going, you'll believe a game can make you cry. So that's happened Absolutely. with a lot of these amazing games. I will say uh, to kind of a little bit of a shameless plug, I was very, I was very blessed the other day watching a YouTuber streaming our Redwall game. And he came across, there's a, there's a bit in, there's a, there's a, a, a churchyard in the in the game so there's gravestones and everything else but in that we put a a tribute to brian jakes the author and so this guy's wandering around and he finds that and you watch him get choked up just, oh wow he just feels like oh man look what these guys was, he, was he a Redwall series fan then uh yeah, this, this streamer fan. oh wow yeah. okay okay yeah i want to ask in chapter three about you all's games uh, because that's something i'm frankly a little less familiar with so i look forward to finding out more about those so things like that yeah i think a, a critic just doesn't seem to understand that these aren't just you know, someone sitting in an arcade in the mall and it's the 1980s, you know, and, and the big bully is outside, you know, trying to steal his video game quarters. Like the culture is completely different than what some of the critics grew up with. Uh, there's not just the games that I like to play, which is usually like a first person uh, adventure, but also these games that involve like the open world and all these people who are playing at the same time and talking yeah. with each other and like that's how a lot of people who might end up in the basement, you know, now are finding community. And yes. yeah, there's a lot of money in there and there's a lot of celebrity chasing and all the usual ills that are associated with any good thing because humans are still sinful. We like to smash things up into idols instead of smashing the idols. But the inherent good here is that people are creating because they're made in God's image and they are one way or another trying to pursue that full human experience. It's the glory of God to make men alive. Um, yeah. And that's, that's even part of the usual uh, themes of these games is staying alive, you know, accomplishing something, leveling up, getting your XP, banding up with people to storm the castle. Like a bunch of these things reflect real life. And if someone is, I think, trained by a wise Christian, they can understand, you know, that good thing you liked about the video game you like that because God has given you the gift of liking that. Yes, yes. there's some idols we need to talk about, and y'all need Jesus more than you need the XP, but that's the way that a Christian should go if we're going to train people to enjoy games for God's glory. Totally agree with that. There's a, there's a thing I love to talk about with people, especially in these investor cases, is I'm like, I want you to look forward and say, like, what of the things in this room will exist in heaven? Because what won't exist is healthcare. You know, what won't exist is fintech. None of that will be there. But what will exist is art. What will exist is games and fun and life. Like that will be eternal. And you know this intuitively. And so when you're wondering, like, is this a good use of my time and money? Like, this is arts and entertainment represent the headwaters of so many of the ways that we think. 
And then there's a famous quote, like, give me the, give me the poets of the society. We won't ever need a war. This whole thing, like it is, is our, the ways in which our imagination are captured shows like what we celebrate, what we value, what we pursue. And that is a kind of a, uh, kind of a language of our soul that comes through the, the, the art that we consume. Um, and everything else, our politics, our, 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 uh, our finances, our government, our, our education, those are all downstream from what we believe is important. We learn what's important through beauty. I see a lot of people these days, especially uh, we try not to get into politics here, but when people now are realizing just what you've said, uh, the phrase that's used is often uh, politics is downstream of culture. One can say yeah. that it's part of a, a water cycle where everything's in, in that system of everything cycling around, but often it very much is. And so now some people are going, well, I guess we need to make some culture then. Like, well, A, you've already been doing that. You know, maybe you need to take another look at whether what the culture you've made is, is eternally significant. But also, you don't really get there just by deciding we need to have some more culture around these here parts. You need to understand <laughs> uh, biblical anthropology. You need to understand why God has made human beings in the first place. It's not just for our own amusement, it's to glorify him and glorification of him takes many different forms. First, get yes. saved, you know, second, join a local church and, and then also like reflect God's glory in the world through your creative pursuits, your business, your raising a family, like all that stuff is put together and your artwork and your creativity and how you play just as much as how you work. Uh, that's called the doctrine of vocation. And uh, that's probably another uh, episode. But speaking of vocation, I'm ready for chapter three now to find out a little bit more about Soma Games, uh, which I'm sure employs writers. And in case that's uh, something like you, faithful listener, ears up for the next sponsor, I write the How to Write a Novel course. Are you looking for a fun yet challenging writing class for your teen or yourself? I write How to Write a Novel is an online writing course that will teach you how to write novels that your friends and even strangers will want to read how to overcome writer's block and gather ideas, and much more. A mentorship option is also available to go along with the course. I Write is taught by E.J. Kitchens, a professional copy editor, former college lab instructor, and award-nominated author of the Star Clock Chronicles and Magic Collectors books. For more information and to enroll, visit ejkitchens.com courses. You can also get that link in the show notes for this episode. 197 or go to lorehaven.com slash podcast. All right, Chris, uh, this is where we get uh, uh, unashamed shilling because we want to find out about Soma Games Chapter 3. This is your company named after the stuff that you ought not consume uh, in the brave new world. What kinds of games does Soma create and why? Y'all have an explanation <laughs> of your website, but I want to hear this backstory from you in person. A, why start a video game company? What's the backstory? And B, why name it after uh, the drug from, from an infamous from uh, dystopian world. <laughs> novel. Okay. So the true story, and there's, there's a short story and a very, very long story. The short story is like, I started Soma games because God told me to. And for me, it was very much sort of one of those supernatural experiences. Like all of a sudden this was just super, super clear. And, uh, and I tell that story at, at some exhausting length on our, on our website. If you're interested, I think it's a fun story, but I couldn't, I couldn't just like spit it out. Part of that moment was, I felt like God said, this is the name of your company, which is to say, the way that I see it is like, I didn't pick this name, um, God did. And and so on the one hand, clearly it is uh, it is mentioned in Brave New World. But what I found is like, it's actually a really interesting word. It exists in lots of different languages to mean lots of different things. And so 
Brave New World feels like a really fun kind of like double or even triple entendre. Um, the opiate of the masses and kind of keeping everyone, you know, stultified. So that right. they don't so, Soma's what you take when you want to make your problems go away. It basically puts you in a coma <laughs> and gives you really vivid, pleasant dreams, and you can just forget and suppress everything. Which is exactly what video games do down in the basement, right? Exactly. <laughs> just kind of like medicate everyone away. So <laughs> that, I think, is just ironic and funny. But it is also, in Finnish, it's a word that represents, sort of means pretty, sort of means cute. And and so for us, the 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 aspect of the artistic beauty of games has always been a central feature. In Swahili, it means something like learning or teaching. And so it has this connotation in Swahili. In Hindu mythology, Soma is the name of the drink that the gods drink to keep them gods. And so it's like just a hair breadth away from sort of living water and this ambrosia, something like this. But I think the one I've come to really believe God meant, although he probably means all those things, is, uh, is that in Greek, it means body in, in the way that when Paul talks about the body of Christ, he's talking about the soma of Christ. When all the parts come together into the, to form one soma, that's the word that he uses. And so the community building aspect of soma was, I, I'll get to this in just a moment, but was a unexpected piece of this journey. But I've come to believe it's actually probably the most important. This happened in 2005, where God, you know, goest thou and make video games in my name, which was super weird for me. Did it actually speak in the KJV? Or did it just feel like (laughs) it? Sometimes that that sense of inspiration can can always feel a little KJV lofty there. So, so no, not KJV and not audible, just to be clear. It was, uh, it was just this series of events. And for me, like, I really feel like, you know, kind of still small voice in your heart is a big part of how I try to Mm. live. And, uh, and so, but this was, you know, there's times where it's more or less clear, right? Sometimes less still, sometimes less small. Um, and so this was kind of a big kick in the face. And then it was really, uh, validated by a whole series of, you know, those sort of coincidences slash miracles that you're like, okay, something is moving here that I am not in control of. I love it when that happens, by the way, uh, it's happened to me it's, at least a few times. And then you can look back and go, oh, that, that was God's providence moving. That was him absolutely. nudging me when I didn't even know it. But afterwards it seems really clear. Yeah. And so for Soma, like we, we stepped into a place where, uh, so I told you on the, in section one, back in junior college, I had my video game dream totally dashed. Like, like this one rando guy at college said, like, you shouldn't do this. And I believed him. And then for like 20 years, I, you know, I just did stuff, right? I had a job. I was entrepreneurial. So I like lived life many years later. So I'm now I'm going to fast forward about 2015 as Soma has now started. We've started building things. And I still haven't got my head around it. Like, why am I doing this? And in the, in the course of a single year, I met three people. One was Scott Adams. And I mentioned the Scott Adams video games were hugely influential for me. Back when he made those games, he was not a believer. But he had since married a tie-dye-wearing Puerto Rican woman who's fantastic. And he'd become saved. And so I met him at the Christian Game Developers Conference. And I'm like, Scott, oh my gosh, like you were hugely influential in my life. And so we shook hands and did all that. And he actually worked with us on a, a game later on. Later that year, I met Rand Miller, who made the Mist series, another huge influential thing. I'm like, oh my gosh, you changed my life. And of course, he's a believer. And, uh, and then I met Dave Evans, who was one of the founders of, uh, of Electronic Arts. And I had the same conversation, you changed my life. And so in one year, I met all these men who are all believers. And I was just blown away by the providence of it. Like, how did this all happen? And it was there where I felt like God said, do you remember you wanted to be a game developer all those years ago? And the truth is, I hadn't. I'd forgotten that that's what I wanted to be. 
And here I was, you know, years later, and it's like God almost had to back me into this case and realize, here you are, you're doing that thing. And it was, it was this incredible, like light bulbs go on. It's like all of this stuff came together to bring me right to this moment. And what a wild ride it's been. Soma is the result of that. It was the result of a very supernatural thing. If we lean into that with, oh, there's a fair bit of fear and trembling in that because it feels like more of an assignment than an opportunity. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting place to live. So what sorts of games does Soma make? Uh, what was y'all's first game? And then um, any other highlights in particular? Like you mentioned the Redwall series. I know that y'all have done some stuff even with the Wingfeather saga. But what yeah. stuff can you talk about, uh, even if it's fairly chronological? Sure, sure. So we started um, back in 2005 when we first had this idea. Your choices were console. So it was basically Xbox, that kind of thing, PlayStation. And they were very, very expensive to make. And you needed a ton of money. And no investor is going to give a, you know, a web development shop you know, a million dollars just to see what happens. So we kind of bided our time until 2008 when the iPhone came out. Now you could make a game on the iPhone really for a fraction. Of that. I think for $10,000 was our total cost. And so we made a game called G Into the Rain, and it was a gravity puzzle game, sort of like Death Tank or something like that. Um, and that was our very first game. When we did that, we actually invested a fair bit in like music and voiceover and basically the artistic pieces of it. And that got some people's attention. And they would say things like, if you made that, can you make this? And so pretty instantly, mobile was blowing up and people were just throwing money at us. And so, and that included where Intel was is, uh, is just over the road from here in Hillsboro. And we had some contacts in there. And pretty soon for the next several years, we made several hundred, I don't want to say several hundred, about 200 different apps for mobile and for app and for the app store on someone else's nickel. So we had all of this client work that let us train and learn and figure out. And we weren't really making games for ourselves very much at that point, but it was fine. It was a good training time. We had this history of all of this work and training and, and exploration, and we were all over the map. So sometimes it was for desktop, sometimes it was for mobile, sometimes it was Android, iOS, you name it. So the variety of games we've made goes from like reversey to, you know, to, to eventually we got to more uh, robust console games and, and, uh, uh, procedural games always it's someone else's idea though one of the fun things that we made for a guy was a uh, he wanted to make a game with simulated wildfire fighting with aircraft and so we had to have this dynamic system of how fire spreads in a in a forest and you know heat transfer it was actually super super complex and it it broke the iphone it was, it was like overheat it was too much math so we had to dumb that way down but then it was fun to drive the airplanes across and you know you'd swipe with with the firefighting retard it was it was a fun mobile game but then in 2011 was this huge break where we wound up connected to the Redwall property, which at the time was so far above our pay grade. Like it was absolutely, how did this wind up in our hands? And it was just a series of, you know, this guy knows that guy who knows this guy. And sooner or later, we're kind of like roped into it. And literally at the time, I didn't know what Redwall was. Um, so I get this phone call and I'm like, yeah, I mean, okay, talking mice, they've got swords. We could probably do something. Just let me know when you're ready. Lots of stoats, and, uh, lots of feasting, <laughs> lots of quests. Lots and lots of. It's basically Reaper Cheap, the franchise, because it's That's like all the talking it. beasts of Narnia got together and there's no humans and no Aslan, but it's still really cool. My wife's been a big fan for a very long time. They're great books, but at the time I didn't know them. And uh, it was fun stories. Like we made our very first blog post about this, probably in 2014. Like things just kind of got to the point where we could start talking about it. And, uh, and this soldier in Afghanistan writes us a letter in pencil. And he's like, Redwell changed my life. I wouldn't be the man I was without it. And he just goes on for pages about how much it means to him. Oh, wow. 
And, and, and he's like, and I love that you guys got this. You're going to do it so well. Like, I think you're going to take good care of it. It's fantastic. And at the very end, he's like, don't screw it up. Except he didn't say screw. And, uh, and we were like, what, <laughs> what are we got ourselves into? And pretty soon we start getting more and more letters like that. Like this IP, like people love, love, love it. And, and so we, we just realized we had a tiger by the tail and became this big, like responsibility in a good sense. Like we felt like we'd been entrusted with something really precious. So we worked really hard on the story. We worked really hard to make sure that we were looping in the fans. We're going to do the best we can. And you know, you can't make everybody happy, but you can certainly do the, you can take it seriously. Um, and we did. And I think the fan base has been so wonderful. They've been very supportive and very, they, they want us to do it well. Um, the, the, uh, the Jake's family has been fantastic to work with. Like we've had a really good experience with Redball and not just one game. So, so yeah, shameless plug, right? Here in February 20, we'll be releasing the Scout Anthology, uh, which is all of our previous. So this is a 3D puzzle adventure dialogue story game. Um, so think in the neighborhood of Zelda, that kind of thing, um, but set in Redwall. And we'll be releasing that on Steam, Xbox, and PlayStation. It will be mobile, but at the moment it'll be on Steam called Feast and Friends. And that is the cooking game. So cooking, as you said, like food is such a central piece of Redwall. Like the rats are banging the doors down and they're like, let's go have a sandwich. So it's like, it's so central to the whole world. And, uh, and I love cooking myself personally. So uh, what's been, I think one of the fun things about games is because everything's in play, you can, you can explore kind of any concept, any value, any fun thing. You're like, I wonder if we could make this into a system, if we can make this into a game. And, and with, with just a little bit of cleverness, it's really, really cool. I am a huge fan of short format games. So, and, and I think about this in terms of, you mentioned the parables earlier, the idea that I can play a game for two or three hours, and if it makes that punch, then we're good. Uh, like I can make a point and it could be fantastic. That's not to say I don't enjoy 60 hour epics, but I can only play so many of those and I, I tend to go for volume. <laughs> so that's the Redwall game. And again, just to repeat, you all made like Redwall Kitchen, the game, basically just a cooking game based on Redwall. Yeah. And it's called Feast and Friends. Yeah. Wait till I tell my wife about this. Uh, when does that release? I literally will go onto my PlayStation and put that into whatever queue I can put that into. <laughs> So that one will be on Steam. So oh, that's I, I Steam. Okay, a, so it's PC a, game. Yeah. Okay, good. Good. She does love that too. So we'll we'll see if we can port it out to to consoles. Like we don't know yet. Um, but uh, but yeah. And if you if you'd like, you you hook me up and I'll get you a a, a pre release copy. Oh, so you can see marvelous. What we're okay, I was yeah. gonna pay for this, and the faithful listeners are gonna pay for this. I wasn't gonna ask them to do something I wasn't gonna do myself. But we definitely need to get in on this thing. Now, so y'all are working with the, the, the Jake's estate for, for Redwall, but there's some other franchises that y'all have done as well as your own originals as well. Yeah. Tell me some about, uh, for example, the, the wing feather tie in that you all made. So wing feather saga decided, if, if you don't know this, they did, they are doing all of their animation using the unreal game engine. So they're taking a very different approach. So it's like 3d at its core and somewhere there, Brock Starnes, who knows me from other concepts, like said, Hey, can you give us some give us some training, like help us understand this engine. It's a game engine by nature. And so one conversation led to another, but pretty soon we just started talking about gaming in general. And the idea that they are fully aware that their core audience, basically eight to 12 year old kids, they game voraciously. And one idea was if you want to find those kids, they're on Roblox. 
So we created a huge role. We basically recreated season one in Roblox. So we've got all the major sets. So we've got Iggy Cottage. We've got the the village. We've got the tree, Peace Treehouse, the Ankle Jelly Manor. And so we recreated these in Roblox and just made a, a community game for you to explore the world. And that has been so rewarding that, uh, and, and frankly, if you're kind of business-minded, the the cost comparison between making that and making, for example, a bunch of YouTube videos, Facebook posts, that kind of stuff, they actually compare really well. And so, but what's great is the people who game compared to the people who like your post, these people are in it to win it. And they come back and they come back and they come back and they're spending hours and hours engaging with your brand. So they're learning about Wing Feather. They're learning about all the characters. They're engaged in this world when the series is over or in between seasons, it's really great from a, from a, from an IP perspective. And some people I think make the mistake of, of thinking that you can make a movie or a show or a game. And that's not true. You should be making both. The, the idea that brands now are worlds where people want to see it in lots of formats. They want fan fiction. They want a, they want a board game. They want, you know, an online community. They want a show like the, the, you think about Star Wars in a way, like it's this huge world that people, I want to wear the hat and have the lunchbox. Like that's the where the stuff is. So working with Wingfeather has been fantastic. Um, when they mentioned Roblox, we were like, mm, that's not a real game. So we were a little bit snooty about it. And frankly, until we got in there, and Roblox is actually really impressive. So I, I've changed my tune on that. And we've, we've loved that product and, and they've been a great team to work with. Um, then you mentioned we, another experience that came out of Redwall is the best performing Redwall product we made was interactive fiction. It's a mobile game called The Lost Legends of Redwall. And folks love reading. And, and from a sense of if you were originally a reader, then the baby step towards gaming is probably interactive fiction, right? It's choose your own adventure, that kind of thing. And so we, we didn't really think about that because we were coming primarily from the gaming world. But it turned out to be a great bridge between readers and gamers. And we really want to do more interactive fiction because it's such a fun genre. We're really far down the long of, a, of our own interactive fiction, which harkens all the way back to our very first game, G Into the Rain. And it is a world that is sort of like the pre-flood world of Noah's Ark, but now add in Blade Runner and Supernatural. So if I throw all that into a mash, I've got this kind of like neon noir um, adventure uh, detective game about like just a wild world of how... How dark can the world be that God's like, this has got to go. <laughs> like, it's got to be, you know, and so it's not family friendly. It's not safe for kids, but it's like steeped in biblical stories and steeped in. But the thing is, if you're not a believer, you wouldn't know that. You're just like, wow, that's crazy stuff. That's fascinating. And the, that starts to answer my uh, probably final question here is, yeah, what's ahead for Soma Games uh, through the year 2024 and even going into next year? So we've got that to look forward to. Uh, in addition to the other releases uh, coming out uh, in, in uh, February, um, any other news you want to break or hints you want to drop uh, before we uh, send you back into the TARDIS? How about this? I will say, like, I have some cues on some more IPs. Like, if I, the one big project that we're working on is this interactive fiction as a platform. We have about 50 stories that we want to tell. I really hope we get to do that. And it's everything from biblical stuff. So, I think like, House of David, Chosen, stuff like that. Like, I would love to do those stories because I think they're really, really fun. On up to like Cthulhu horror stuff. So there's this re this really big thing where I think the genre of games is is just it is so wide open. Which is one of the reasons I started hanging out with 
uh, realm makers is there's a gigantic need growing, not just at Soma, but all over for writers who really can tell good stories because the format of the, of the technology of interactive really needs good storytellers. It's a little bit, well, it's a lot different from writing a novel. It's a little bit different from writing a screenplay, but story, story. And, uh, and so interacting with all the, all the great authors at realm makers has just exposed us to so much fun stuff. So right now that's kind of our, our big push. Um, and, uh, but otherwise I think that's, yeah, I don't have any announcements beyond those three games feels like a lot this year. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll let you get back to the work there. Uh, Chris Skaggs, thank you so much for stopping by and where can folks track Soma games, uh, on the interwebs? somagames.com so super super easy peasy all the links in the show notes uh chris a uh, safe journey to you and uh make those games for god's glory really appreciate what y'all are doing and we're going to be praying for y'all that's a big project but it is so necessary thank you sir thank you very much Well, it was fantastic to meet uh, Chris. Uh, we actually haven't met before that interview, so a complete a blind introduction there. But wow, I love the like-mindedness of someone who's not only grown up to love games, these interactive, playable adventures that bring together all of these creative disciplines, uh, but articulate why, to love them and even make them uh, for the glory of God, the glory of God properly understood, uh, not narrowed to that sort of uh, really pragmatic uh, definitions that sometimes sneak in when we're not looking. All the best to uh, Chris Skaggs and uh, all of the crew at Soma Games. By the way, our comm station is open. I want to hear what you thought about this conversation. And our top question for you then is, how do you train yourself and uh, maybe help train others to game for God's glory? Uh, how have you been uh, grinding with the side quests and collecting stuff in the woods and uh, getting more XP uh, in order to worship Jesus, not just through church and the training exercises there as much as we need those, uh, but in normal life of recreation and play and creativity. So send us your reply to that podcast at lorehaven.com or tag us on all the socials. Just search for Lorehaven. You can also uh, react in our Lorehaven Guild that I mentioned at the top of the show, where one hero of the guild, D.H. McCormack, uh, had some thoughts about episode 196. Uh, that was just our last episode that we recorded with Jamie Foley, the creative director of Enclave Publishing. Lots of great discussion there. People like knowing how books are made and also like debating what's best or what's their favorite uh, ebooks, hardcovers, softcovers, audiobooks. Or maybe, you know, you copy the book into a handwritten scroll and that's your favorite. But D.H. McCormack said, really enjoyed the conversation of digital versus physical mediums and how that connects to traditional expressions of Christianity versus newer ones. In a world drowning in digital noise, the feel of a nice book in your hands and the way it forces you to be still quiet and pay attention to one thing is really valuable. I thought that was a great thought uh, because we mentioned in that episode about how a physical book takes up space and it has weight and maybe that's the kind of thing that more people are looking for in a local church service but there's also a kind of quietness there there's an encouragement to be still uh, almost to meditate uh, not just sit there and hum and empty your mind but to sit there and be quiet and fill your mind uh, that's much closer to the biblical ideal and of course reading a book on a page uh, connects us with the past in which our uh, ancestors and the family of Christ also read pages. I joked earlier about scrolls, but that is how the word of God was originally communicated. So there's something about the, uh, the tactile nature of that practice. There's something about the quiet, and there's certainly something about the discipline 
that helps us to build those connections in our mind and uh, become flourishing humans. Another Guild hero, Bob H., also remarked, One subject that wasn't touched on that I expected was that I often hear authors talk about the difficulties in naming their books. Well, that's a really good point. Uh, That probably would have taken us a little earlier into the process of the making of the manuscript and the writing and the behind the scenes stuff. That's more about the author in a room or swapping manuscripts with uh, readers and such, uh, which was outside the scope of the show. Interestingly, I have my own thoughts about naming books, and it's my personal goal to be able to name as much as possible, within reason, with flexibility, uh, any books uh, that I ever make. Uh, My first book I did not actually name. We had another name for the pop culture parent. Uh, The publisher suggested that name, and it wasn't just me writing it. It was me and uh, Ted and Jared, but we all kind of looked at each other, I think, over the distance and went, I don't hate it, and then realized, yeah, that's a really good name. So props to the publisher of the pop culture parent there. Uh, It's a very memorable title, and uh, you got to think about marketing and search engine optimization and all that stuff. And of course, you might want to check just to make sure uh, that the book title that you think is amazing uh, isn't one that's already been used or a title that uh, connotes something that the book is not actually trying to be. We look forward to doing more behind-the-scenes episodes like this. We kind of had two in a row, uh, the first one for how books are made, and then this one really about how video games are made. What do you want to know about how fantastical stories are made? Uh, just let us know. Email podcast at lorehaven.com or tag us on said socials. Next on Fantastical Truth, speaking of games, did you know that next week, as of this release date anyway, is a certain major competitive sporting event, but instead of XP, they have scores. Instead of combo moves and puzzle solving, they have plays. And instead of dying, they have losing. And instead of save points, they have yard lines. How can Christians who love fantastical stories show love and respect to other kinds of fans who love sports? Meanwhile, I'm not the biggest sports fan and I'm only a casual gamer, but fantastical stories can arise anywhere you look because we live in a fantastical world. Uh, Let's not suppose that something like video games is inherently worthless or needs special reasons like, oh, the game will teach you something in order to justify it. Let's get closer to a more biblical definition of recreation and know that we can glorify God through anything that we do so long as we are in Christ and we are shaped by his word and through prayer as we continue to seek and find his fantastical truth.